Welcome to Miller Kane, a serialized novel by Samuel Ligon, published for the first time in The Inlander and broadcast by Spokane Public Radio. Miller Kane is made possible by Sprint and The Inlander. This is Chapter 7 of the Miller Kane podcast, which collects eight weekly installments in one episode. A new chapter will be released as a podcast each Thursday until the novel reaches its conclusion. Be sure to subscribe to get the latest chapter as soon as it's available. Previously on Miller Kane, Connor Callahan's sudden appearance at the Pendleton Roundup, handing out flyers offering a reward for an abducted child, startled Miller Kane. With no time to say goodbye to their new friends Monica and little Bella, Miller Kane and eight-year-old Carlene managed to slip away in Miller's motorhome. Connor, Carlene's deadbeat father, is the reason they're on the road in the first place. He suddenly came back into the picture when he learned that Carlene will inherit a massive family fortune he believes is rightfully his. Meanwhile, Lizzie, Carlene's mom, is still stuck in jail after shooting and wounding Connor. Miller and Carlene are now driving east, looking to put some distance between themselves and Connor. Now, here's author Samuel Ligon. Chapter 7, Part 1 Carlene had never been to Yellowstone, and Miller thought it might be a good distraction on their way to wherever they were going, the Little Bighorn first, then deeper into the country and away. He'd only slept for a few hours since leaving Walla Walla, and he tossed and turned now in his bed at the back of the motorhome. Carlene hadn't slept much either, but she wasn't having trouble sleeping in her loft. Miller was too wired, too disturbed by Connor's appearance in Pendleton. How had he found them? Dina hadn't seen him since that day at their mother's nursing home. Showing up like he did last night seemed like proof he could track them anywhere. Carlene slept, dreaming away her anger and disappointment, Miller hoped, at being pulled away from Bella. He needed something for her when she woke, but when he tried to book a reservation at Yellowstone, the hotels and RV sites were all full, even with school back in session. Still, they could spend a few days at the park, sleeping in Cody or somewhere nearby. Miller got out of bed and made coffee. Carlene didn't stir, even with him banging around the kitchen. He knew they couldn't drive forever. They'd only been on the road three months, but Carlene needed stability. Miller would have to find a place with other kids and good food and good coffee and good people and schools where no one would find them until Lizzie got out, which might be after Carlene was grown. Connor's flyer had referred to her as missing or abducted, but she wasn't missing. She was safe in her loft in the motorhome, and she hadn't been abducted. Miller was her caretaker, protecting her from an abusive father, as her mother had asked him to do. Maybe not her legal guardian, but so what? Miller checked her again, still sleeping, still breathing, then went outside with his coffee and Larry McMurtry's biography of Crazy Horse, which stressed how little any biographer, including McMurtry, knew about the man. Miller's phone buzzed with a call from the Skagit County Jail. He answered, bracing himself for the roar of the line, but there was just a low rumble, like an underground train coming toward him. Hello? 
Miller said several times to the echo of his own voice. He was about to hang up when the line cleared enough for him to hear Lizzie say his name, followed by a blast of static and the full roar. Are you there? she said. I'm here, he said. It was like screaming inside a hurricane. How is she? Lizzie said, and Miller said, We're in California now, on our way to Nevada. It seemed important to lie as much as possible to keep the authorities off balance. I can't, click, roar, California? How are you? Miller screamed. There was almost nobody at this rest stop. An elderly couple walking a miniature dog, a man smoking a cigarette at the picnic table. No sign of Connor. I can't, she said, rebel rap. I know, Miller said. He hadn't slept in who knew how long, and the roar was affecting his vision, making him nauseous. Miller held the phone away from his ear, the interstate humming under the roar, a few of Lizzie's words crackling over it. The air itself seemed filled with sound, but at least there was no smoke now. Maybe the fires were finally out. Can you hear me? Lizzie said, and Miller said, kind of. And Lizzie made other sounds, then said, anything. I can't. I know, Miller said. The smoking man across the parking lot lit another cigarette. The crinkle, Lizzie said. The wrinkle round. Another blast of static. The noise had never been this overwhelming, maybe because they were so far away from each other. The line cleared, roared, cleared. I can't, Lizzie said, and Miller said, I know. Please, she said, her voice slipping. Can you hear me, she said. You have to get me out of here, she said. Another blast of static. I can't, she said, and the line went dead. Out of there. They were going the other way and were going to keep going. Besides, there wasn't enough money for bail, not if he was going to keep supporting Carlene. The world came back to him as the ringing faded, birds whistling and chirping and cawing and the old couple's pocket dog barking. The man who'd been smoking was gone, then appeared from the bathroom and walked toward his car, an El Camino in good condition, but he didn't get in his car. He didn't even slow down. He kept walking toward Miller. The motorhome's door swung open. Miller turned and Carlene was there. Go back inside, he said. Why, Carlene said. We're headed out, Miller said. And when he turned back around, the man was still approaching. Early 40s, Miller's age, Connor's age. There was no reason for him to keep coming like that. I have to pee, Carlene said. Pee in the moho, Miller said. I thought, just do it, Miller said, pushing her inside and closing the door. Geez, he heard her say. The dude was 20 feet away. Miller needed something heavy to bash his brains in with. He'd probably been in Pendleton last night, or maybe the flyers were all over the West now, all over the country. Hey, man, the dude said, and Miller said, hey, trying to appear nonchalant, a man outside a motorhome managing his tremor. If you need help with that flat, he said, I can give you a hand. If Miller turned to look for the flat, he'd get clubbed in the head with a tire iron, his blood running out in the parking lot while the dude snatched Carlene for the flyer's reward. But the dude didn't have a tire iron. Miller probably looked insane, an abductor who hadn't slept in days, his tremor about to escalate into full-blown convulsions. He had to look away, to hide, to look at the tire that wasn't flat. But it was flat. You've done this before? Miller said, turning back around, and the man said, Walt, holding out his hand. 
Miller took it, shook it, said his own name. Had a rig like this when my kids were young, Walt said. That your little girl? Of course it was his little girl. I don't know if my spare's any good, Miller said, and then, my daughter and I are headed for Yellowstone. How stupid he was. He should have said Utah or Oregon or Mexico. He should have told Carlene they would pose as a family from now on. Walt pulled the cover off the spare, Miller watching as if Walt were his father and Miller a nine-year-old boy. Looks okay, Walt said. You know where the jack is? Miller shook his head. Walt was pretending to be a good Samaritan, though he was really a killer or a cop. Whatever he was, Miller hated him for helping. I've got one, Walt said, walking toward the El Camino. Carlene peeked out the side door and said, What's happening? We got a flat, Miller said, and we're going to Yellowstone. Who's that, Carlene said, and Miller said, That's Walt. I've never been to Yellowstone, Carlene said. She seemed better than last night happy again, herself. Walt walked back with the jack. Miller didn't want to see everyone as a cop or killer. Everything was going to be fine. Then the cat bolted out the motorhome side door. Waffles, Carlene cried, the cat tearing across the parking lot toward the expanse of grass where the old couple stood with their piddling pocket dog. Walt dropped his jack to chase the cat, Miller following, Carlene following Miller. It seemed possible that Waffles would kill the little dog, but the dog fought back. Waffles, Carlene cried. Cookie, the old woman cried. The dog had Waffles pinned, teeth bared, was going for his throat. But before the dog could kill the cat, the old man lifted him into the air by his leash where he hung, spinning and panting, smiling the way dogs sometimes do. Waffles scrambled toward the bathroom building, Carlene right behind him. Chapter 7, Part 2 Not everyone's a killer, a victim, a survivor, an abuser, a busybody waiting to call the cops for any little thing you might do. Walt changed the flat while Earl and Judy put their pocket dog away, then helped Carlene coax waffles from the rest stop roof. Miller brought out a box of ho-hos. My mom doesn't let me have these usually, Carlene said, and Judy said, where is your mom, sweetie? And Carlene said, back home, where we're headed, as if she knew to lie. Good girl, Miller thought, and then they were moving again, invigorated by these nice people and the fight between Waffles and the pocket dog. No one was hurt, human or animal. By the time they got a new set of tires, all four, setting Miller back two grand, they had some hard driving to do if they were going to make Yellowstone before nightfall. Miller thought a hotel might be nice. Carlene thought a hotel with a pool might be nice. But aren't we supposed to be somewhere for George, she said, referring to the lie Miller had told to get them out of Oregon, away from Connor. We're going there now, Miller said. To Yellowstone? There first, Miller said, but then the little bighorn, where Custer had his stand. Do you know about that? Sort of, Carlene said. Mom said the Indian women pushed sewing needles into his ears so he could hear better next time. That's right, Miller said. 
It was nice to take a day off with sleep stretched out before them. Maybe there'd be a place to hide the motorhome behind the motel. But when do we go home? Carlene said. And Miller said, after we go to Laura Ingalls Wilder's house in Missouri. That's for the book, too. You can write that part if you want. Then home? Carlene said. Miller wanted her to be happy while he looked for a place to settle, to make a new home while Lizzie rotted. But maybe that was stupid. Maybe they should be back in Washington, close to the jail, so Carlene could see her mom. But Connor was there, waiting to snatch Carlene. Or Connor was behind them, waiting to snatch Carlene and send Miller to prison. I think so, Miller said. You don't know, Carlene said. Let's ask your mom when she calls. Lizzie had sounded so awful on the phone earlier. And why wouldn't she, trapped in that awful place? I don't really know our schedule, Miller said. I just know Yellowstone, then Little Bighorn, which the Indians call Greasy Grass, then Mount Rushmore and the carved president heads. But I thought, that's on the way to Laura's too, Miller said. All of it is. Then home, Carlene said. Right, Miller said, because even though we're on an adventure, sometimes we get tired. He needed her to believe. And maybe it would change where and what home was and with whom. Maybe it already had changed. Who knows what's going to happen, Miller said. Who knows what we'll see. Like that over there, he said, pulling into the parking lot and nodding toward the pool, which appeared to be both indoor and outdoor, something Miller had discovered while searching the Internet earlier for the best motel pool in Twin Falls. I've never seen that before, Carlene said. It's pretty cool, Miller said. I'll bet there's a water park in Kansas we should visit, too. And then home, Carlene said. Or maybe your mom will join us, Miller said, if she's out by then. Will she be? We don't know, Miller said. Lizzie had told him it would be at least two years. Would Connor keep tracking them all that time? Could Miller pay him off? If so, they could wait in Mount Vernon, close to Carlene's mom. But Miller didn't have money for a payoff, not the kind of money Carlene was going to get once her grandfather's will was settled. That's what Connor wanted, more money than Miller could ever raise on the massacre circuit. Why couldn't Lizzie just divorce Connor and give him a piece of Carlene's cash once it came in? It had been fine to roll around for a couple months, but now Miller didn't know what he was supposed to do. They checked in and put on their swimsuits, played in the pool. They had pizza and watched a movie about cat burglars and a cat detective and surfers and jewels. And then Miller slept for 10 hours without waking, without dreaming. And when he woke, Carlene was asleep with a piece of pizza next to her head in the bed beside his. It was a beautiful morning. Miller let her sleep while he checked out. And as he handed over the cash, the man at the desk said, "'Don't I know you from somewhere?' And Miller said, I don't think so. And the man said, are you on TV or something? And Miller said, nope, sort of looking down, sort of turning away. You were on that show about shootings, the clerk said. And Miller said, no, I wasn't. And he walked away and woke Carlene and got them out of there. The world was shrinking or Miller was emerging in it somehow, visible to everyone. At Yellowstone, Carlene saw buffalo and bears and boiling pots of sulfurous goo. While waiting for Old Faithful to blow, Miller saw a man pointing toward him through the crowd. Right over there, the man said, leading a woman toward them. Miller, the woman said, and Miller panicked as the couple approached. Miller Kane, the man called. 
People were starting to stare at the kidnapper and his victim. Who are they? Carlene said. It's Joyce, Joyce said, and Carlton. She was close enough now to open her arms. From Milltown, Carlton said. Of course, Miller said, hugging them both. The Milltown massacre had been two years ago, and Joyce and Carlton lost a 10-year-old girl. Is this your little one, Joyce said, and Miller said, Carlene, who shrugged against him and smiled, shy. Looks just like you, Carlton said. The steam got heavier as the geyser started to blow. It really is faithful, Carlene said, and when it was over, Joyce said, they used to feed the bears right here by the geyser with garbage from the hotel. Can you imagine? We shouldn't feed them anything, Carlene said. We're supposed to leave them alone. That's right, Joyce said. And then they were quiet, Miller putting his hand on Carlene's shoulder, signaling they were ready to leave. Joyce reached for another hug. We appreciate what you did for us, she said. We kept that little pig, Tucker. I'm glad, Miller said. All you can do is reach out to the living, Carlton said. I thought there'd be a way to stop the killing, at least slow it somehow. If you just tried hard enough, I thought. If you just made it your whole life. Carl, don't, Joyce said, touching his shoulder. They all looked at the ground. Sorry, Carlton said. It's okay, Miller said. We all are. Thanks again, Joyce said, and they hugged one more time. Carlene looked at Miller as they walked away. What did you do for them, she said. Miller didn't want to tell her about the dead daughter. He couldn't remember her name. You gave them a pig, Carlene said. They had a sick girl, Miller said, one of my students. And she died? Yes, Miller said. Was she shot? Miller didn't answer. My mom told me things, Carlene said, lots of things. And Miller said, I know. They were quiet for a long time until they were driving again, seeing more buffalo. Bison, Carlene said. That's what the book says. They stopped at Pahaska Teepee, where Carlene bought two miniature black bears. And that night they camped in the Walmart lot in Cody. Lizzie still hadn't called. And there was no way to call her. Carlene didn't mention it. Miller would call her attorney in the morning to find out what was going on. Are we on vacation? Carlene said when Miller tucked her in. Sort of, Miller said. Not really. We're doing research for the book. Those people thought you were my dad, Carlene said. I know, Miller said. We can tell people that if you want, Carlene said, even if it is a lie. She looked at him, waiting. Miller didn't know what to tell her or what would be best. He didn't know if she looked like him or not. He kissed her cheek and told her good night. And after she fell asleep, he sat at the table reading about Crazy Horse and the Battle of the Little Bighorn. If Carlene was his, maybe everything would be easier for both of them. But he didn't know if he had a right to find that out or not. It wasn't as if he could lay a claim to her. Chapter 7, Part 3, Carlene's Notebook. Tuesday. Sitting Bull had a vision of soldiers falling into camp. The ranger was a historian, Miller said, and he told the story of Custer and Sitting Bull and the others as we stood looking over the greasy grass. 
thousands of Indians in dust from the ponies, children playing, and soldiers falling into camp. That's when the fighting started, and it lasted for days. Not all the white men were killed, but all yellow hairs were. I asked about the women putting holes in his ears. With a sewing awl, the ranger said, but no one knows if it's true. My grandfather knows, the boy beside me said. It's hard to know what's true, Miller said. Some things are easier to believe than others. Like Laura's story, I said, and Miller said, exactly. My mother could tell when I was lying, she thought. The way the ranger told it was like being inside a vision. Our past tells the story of who we are, Miller said. There's a lot of parts I would tell a different way, I said. That's okay, Miller said, as long as it's true. Bella's grandmother could tell the future, and so could Bella. She put her hands on my head that night in the moho and had a vision of me and my mother. What are we doing, I said. Making dolls and drinking coffee, Bella said. I knew it was true because of the dolls and because I don't drink coffee yet. Thursday. Miller said it was going to be longer than you think, but everything is longer than you think. Until it's over, and then it's not as long as it should have been. Last night, I had a vision that my mother and I were home. She was making cupcakes, and I was making shrinky dinks, and Miller was on the couch reading. She looks just like you, the man at Yellowstone said. We saw the Mount Rushmore and crazy horse heads coming out of the mountains. There should be girls up there, I said, like Mom saying it. I'm sick, she said on the phone, that's all. A little under the weather. I couldn't hear her, and before bed, Miller said, what if it's just us for a while? Who, I said. You and me, he said. That is what it is, I said. But we're going home after Laura's, aren't we? You know we are, he said. Sunday. Nebraska and Kansas are prairie, and so is South Dakota. Lawrence, Kansas, is a grandfather, I said, and Miller laughed. What do you think about this place, he said, and I said, good. What about this place? And I said, good. What about this place? It was Spearfish. I like that one, I said. And I like Omaha, which sounds like a grandmother name. Wednesday. When she called, I couldn't hear her. It's not always going to be like this, Miller said. I had a vision, but nothing happened. We were just home. Did she shoot somebody, I said. Why would you say that, he said. Isn't that why people go to jail? People go to jail for lots of reasons, he said. Not paying taxes is stealing. She didn't mean to do it, but that doesn't matter. Jesse James's mother was Zerelda, and we went to her farm. It was his wife's name, too, and my great-grandmother's name, who I never met because I never even met my grandmother. There was a cabin there and a slave cabin, and you could tell it was real by the smell A six-year-old boy, maybe seven, called me a Yankee. You're a Yankee, I said. No, I'm not, he said. You are. Hush, Miller said, and we walked to the slave cabin. It's still ringing down here, he said. What is, I said. Listen, he said. I could hear a river and the wind in the trees or a stream like the ocean in a shell. I don't know if she'll ever get out, I said. Of course she'll get out, but he doesn't know when. Waffles bites my head in bed. Mom calls them love nips. Just do what Miller says, she says, when I can finally hear her. I could live in KC, Miller says. Where Dorothy's from, I say. But on the Missouri side, he says. 
I miss her most when he's asleep. He loves you, Miller's mom says. You know that, don't you? I call her every day, Miller's mom. Who is this, she says. You're a sweetheart, she says. Did Miller tell you what Billy did, what his mother did? He told me, I say. The police killed him and his father both. It's going to be longer, maybe, Miller says. They won't tell me why. I can't hear her anymore when she calls. Tomorrow is Laura's house, not from the books, but where she lived later. I had a vision of children running and falling in snow. Laura was there as a girl and was maybe me for a minute. Mom was in the sleigh with Miller, and there were Laura and Almanzo in the long winter after he saved them all. A dream is a wish your heart makes, Cinderella says. Of course she's not real. Neither is Bella or Snow White or Tiana or Mulan, but Mom acts like I can't tell the difference, even though she can't tell the difference because she doesn't know the ones at the Roundup were real. So was Sitting Bull and his vision. So was Laura. So was Narcissa and her hair, which I have smelled. So was Mom and Miller and me. Sometimes I feel more real than any of them. Chapter 7, Part 4 They were off the interstate, driving back roads and seeing everything, including Connor, but it wasn't Connor, and Dina hadn't seen him again either. Miller had enough money to carry them through another year, but then he'd have to get back on the circuit or find a real job, something he thought he'd given up for good. They'd settle in Kansas City or Columbia or St. Genevieve or St. Joe, where Miller would teach high school history or middle school social studies, though he didn't know if he could do that again, not with the politicians and functionaries dictating curriculum, making sure nobody taught anything but lies. There was no room anymore to promote the transgression of real learning, the struggle to comprehend, gradually and in flashes, something complex, to feel and articulate feeling, to feel the enormity of what could never be articulated. The country hated teachers now, and since we no longer believed in public education, teachers had come to hate themselves. That was why he'd quit. Because of these ridiculous rants, his crybaby nonsense, his sanctimonious, self-righteous outrage. He'd burned out was all. But just because he couldn't do it didn't mean it couldn't be done. And he would do it, for Carlene. Maybe he'd even do it right. And if he couldn't do it right, he'd do it wrong, or work in a grocery store. No one would find them, and Carlene would love Missouri because they'd go to Laura's house every week, and Miller would keep teaching her. Look how she wrote and read, how she studied the past and present and the places they went. After the Corn Palace and Sioux City and Wichita, they stayed at a hotel in Springfield because Miller wanted a tub and Carlene wanted a pool and they both wanted beds to watch movies from on a gigantic television. They were acclimating to the road, but the end of the line was tomorrow, Laura's house. He couldn't postpone it any longer. He knew they needed to stop for good, but he hadn't told Carlene or Lizzie yet and didn't know how. Maybe it wasn't even true. Maybe they could keep going, tomorrow just another day and not the end of anything. 
They found a craft store where Carlene resupplied. They found a pet store and bought fancy food for waffles. After swimming, Miller read on his hotel bed while Carlene stitched a doll, Miller watching from the corner of his eye how she stuck out her tongue and bit her lip and squinted as she cut and sewed and stuffed the doll's body. It's an Indian baby, she said, holding it out for Miller's inspection. He studied it, nodding. She sewed the doll shut, biting the thread. Is Indian territory still here, she said, referring to the land Laura's family had settled on illegally in Little House on the Prairie. They'd been reading the books every night before bed. Kind of, Miller said, only in Oklahoma now, not Kansas. He brought up a map on his laptop and showed her where they were and where the Osage Reservation was, not 200 miles from where Laura had spent her adult life. He wondered if they could visit all the places she'd lived. Missouri and Wisconsin, Minnesota and South Dakota, Kansas and back to Missouri, stealing enough time for Lizzie to go to trial and get sentenced. Carlene stitched her doll's eyes and said, Maybe she's black buffalo woman. Since Little Bighorn, Carlene had wanted to know everything about Native Americans. And even though Miller tried to keep massacres and starvation and scalping and disease out of at least some of their conversations, Carlene pushed in that direction. And then what happened, she'd say. And if Miller wasn't sure, Carlene would say, a reservation? Or, then we found gold? Wanting always, it seemed, to arrive at one horrible conclusion or another before her final question, but why did it have to be that way? Sometimes they talk more about hunger for gold and land and timber and coal, hunger for everything, the taking of which required theories about superiority and inferiority, civilization and barbarity, lies and resistance and rage breeding massacres and murder, the hunger and hatred always growing, only growing as it fed itself. But why, Carlene wanted to know, no matter what Miller said, until he finally fell silent. Now she threaded a needle red for her doll's mouth. Do you think Jumping Bull could really talk to animals, she said, referring to Sitting Bull's father. I think he could understand them, Miller said, and Carlene said, like Avery. He was glad she could make fun of herself, if that's what she was doing, and glad when she fell to silence instead of leading them towards Sitting Bull's murder. She concentrated on her sewing while Miller read, and then she said, when are we really going home? Maybe this was the opportunity he needed, a threshold to cross. There wasn't much time left. When your mom gets out, he said. When will that be, she said. And Miller said, not sure, but we have the motorhome for now. Or we could stay here for a while. Here, Carlene said. But I want to go home. I know, Miller said. He closed his laptop and crossed to her bed. I'm going to tell you something, he said, but he didn't know what. The truth had never set anyone free, even if he could figure out what it was. There was a fight back home, he finally said, about money from your grandfather. I don't have a grandfather, Carlene said. Your father's grandfather, Miller said. You knew him when you were a baby, but I don't have a father. You know what I mean, Miller said. He hadn't wanted to mention Connor, and now he had. It was your great-grandfather's money, and when he died, he left it to you. How much money, Carlene said, and Miller said, a lot. A million dollars? Maybe. He didn't know me, Carlene said. I didn't know him. You were a baby, Miller said. Is my mom fighting about it? Not really, Miller said. Kind of. Did she shoot my grandfather? He died in his sleep, Miller said. 
He was very old. He had about a hundred cats. Really? He left them money too, Miller said. But some people think the cats shouldn't get money, and some people think you shouldn't. But I don't even want it, Carlene said. I know, Miller said, but it's yours or it's going to be. Do I have to have it? Sort of, Miller said, and Carlene said, is somebody mad at me? No, Miller said. Is my mom mad at me? Nobody's mad, Miller said. Carlene stared at the doll in her hands, but they're fighting. But not about you, Miller said, and Carlene said, is somebody trying to get me? No, Miller said, putting a hand on her shoulder. He didn't know how much to tell her. But you're right. Money can make people do funny things. Like what? Weird things. Like my mom? No, Miller said. What did she do? It was time for the conversation to end. Carlene was looking at him, waiting. She didn't pay her taxes, Miller said. What did she really do? She got in a fight, Miller said. She was worried someone was going to take your money. But I don't have it. Carlene looked down. Her forehead crinkled. Miller put his arm around her. It's going to be okay, he said. I promise. She pulled away. I don't know if it's right to make this doll, she said, crawling off the bed and rummaging through her craft basket. She returned with a seam ripper. I can make a different one, she said, ripping her doll's stitches. Later, after dinner, Miller read to her while she restitched the doll, giving her a bonnet and wisps of blonde hair that looked real. It's Mary, she said, with her sad, empty eyes. Her eyes don't look sad, Miller said, and Carlene said, that's what it says in the book. Miller kept reading about Jack the dog dying and Mary going blind and Laura riding ponies and Pa working for the railroad as it stretched west two years after Crazy Horse's murder, which Laura didn't mention and neither did Miller. Lizzie hadn't called in days, a relief really, and if she called tonight, Miller wouldn't answer. It was Laura Ingalls Wilder Eve. Tonight would just be Miller and Carlene. Chapter 7, Part 5 Miller got up early and left Carlene a note to call from the phone in the room when she woke. Maybe he'd get her a phone of her own so she could always reach him. Her friends would all have them soon enough, and she'd have to have one too. But first they'd have to settle somewhere so she could make friends. Not in school. Too many massacres. He'd teach her at home, and she'd make friends at soccer and piano and ballet, meeting kids at the mall where they'd also get shot. But not everyone, and not every day. He felt lightened by their talk of the previous evening, relieved that she knew about her mom and the money, even if she didn't know about her mom shooting her dad or her dad trying to steal her money. At least she knew something, why they couldn't go home. At least he hoped she knew. He found a coffee shop and sat with his coffee and a bag of donuts. His plan was to write a hero villain before Carlene woke, but when he checked his mail, there was something from George, a meandering, mealy-mouthed message, the purpose of which was to fire Miller. A Cleveland steamer, he wrote. Even you must know that wouldn't fly. Even he must know? What was that supposed to mean? And why couldn't George just cut the steamer if it was such a problem, though the steamer would bring history to life for the kids, something George claimed he wanted? 
It's clear your heart's not in it, he wrote, and never has been. I don't know why you felt the need to waste our time like this. If you didn't want to do it, you could have just said so. All George wanted was the same old nothing. One glorious lie after another, the bodies and plowboys buried. Maybe Miller would write his own book, a collection of hero villains, followed by a series of hero villain comic books, the critics applauding his triumph and bravery, showing America to him, her, them, itself. Why would he even consider contributing to a textbook? He drove back to the hotel where Carlene was still sleeping. He wondered for a horrible moment if she was dead, but when he shook her, she rolled over. He showered. He wrote George a snotty email, then deleted it. He went to the lobby for more coffee, and when he came back, Carlene was eating a donut in bed. Do you think my mom's okay, she said, and Miller said, yep, and we'll keep doing what we're doing while we wait for her. He didn't know how long that would take. Nobody did. He'd have to talk to Lizzie before they told Carlene just how long her mom might be in prison. He read the paper while Carlene brushed her teeth. The problem with George was his meekness. Maybe some of the hero villains were a little racy. So what? That didn't make them untrue. The untrue parts didn't make them untrue either. Everything served a larger truth. If George couldn't see that, Miller didn't need him. They drove to Mansfield and Laura's house, past an abortion graveyard with pretend markers for pretend fetuses under a sign that read, Field of the Fallen Unborn, reminding Miller of Sitting Bull's vision, but with fetuses falling into camp instead of soldiers. It was another beautiful day. At Laura's house, a school bus was pulled into the parking lot, disgorging children. Maybe we can go with them, Carlene said, opening her door and bolting. Miller followed, standing by the motorhome with its crazy bumper stickers, not wanting to share the day. Carlene was thrilled. My dad and me, he heard her say to a girl in a bonnet, and they both looked at Miller, who felt uncomfortable and exposed, a kidnapper, but also proud. He hung back as Carlene melted into the swirl of children. An older woman approached from across the street, Laura herself possibly. Cedar Creek kids, she called, follow me. And Miller and Carlene followed as the woman corralled people, pointing them toward the lawn. Are you with the school? She asked him. And when he said no, that he and his daughter were visiting from out of state, she told him they'd have to come back this afternoon. We can't go, Carlene said. We can go later, Miller said. How old are you, sweetie? A woman asked Carlene. The teacher herself, maybe. Eight, Carlene said. Third grade, Miller said, before Carlene could say she wasn't in school. Us too, the teacher said, introducing herself as Miss Judy or Miss Julie. Carlene said her name. Miller said, I teach high school history. We're in Missouri for a family thing. Wonderful, Judy, Julie said. And to Carlene, would you like to join us? Yes, Carlene said, and the tour boss said, they'll have to pay, and Miller pulled out his wallet, but the boss pointed to a building down the hill. You'll have to go see Joni. Can I stay here, Carlene asked, and Miller looked at Judy Julie, who nodded. In the gift shop slash museum, there were postcards and cookbooks and bonnets for sale. Joni didn't want to sell Miller tickets for the tour with the Cedar Creek kids until he offered a $100 donation, which she accepted. Back on Laura's lawn, Carlene said, Kira wants to meet Waffles. Can I get him out of the moho? 
Not now, Miller said. The tour is about to start. You should talk to the moms, Carlene said, running back to the other kids. Miller approached the moms, introducing himself and learning their names, Tammy and Janine. Your daughter's adorable, Janine said. And Tammy said, first time at Laura's? Miller nodded. The moms smiled. He'd been wrong to wait so long to settle down. He'd tell Lizzie what was what, and she'd be relieved. Carlene ran in circles with a group of girls, shrieking. She'd go to school here, Cedar Creek itself, maybe. He wouldn't hold her back by trying to teach her at home. She ran over again. There's a camp here in the summer, she said. Her face flushed. Fantastic, Miller said, and she tore off again. My daughter went last year, Tammy said. It was wonderful. Eva, the tour boss, lined everyone up, explaining that no one could take pictures or touch anything except what she said they could touch. Miller couldn't think of when he'd felt quite so something, not happy exactly, but full maybe, complete, here on a perfect day with these kids and these moms. Connor would never find them here. No one would. They'd become who they were going to be together, his anxiety regarding what to do and where to go melting away. Laura's house was exactly like it had always been. Everything she and Almanzo had made still everywhere. Rugs and furniture and couch cushions and everything. Laura's books were there and her desk and her bed and they saw it all. Then boarded the bus, Miller and Carlene following in the moho and drove to the other side of the property where the rock house was. Laura's daughter had built it for her parents with all the modern conveniences, a house they endured for a few years before moving back to the farmhouse they loved. Something always a little weird and off about Rose, which Eva confirmed when Miller cornered her. A free spirit, Eva whispered. A collaborator on the books, Miller wondered, and Eva agreed. The books were what they were because of both women's contributions, a symbiotic relationship that could become poisonous because of their clashing egos, Eva whispered. Miller wanted to know much more about that, but it was time to go back to the farmhouse. They ate bagged lunches on the lawn, Miller making Carlene's in the motorhome. She had friends already. They were landing. Miller sat with the grown-ups trying to make appropriate conversation. They ate sugar cookies from Laura's recipe, then walked to the museum where Pa's fiddle was displayed behind glass. Ma's laudanum bottles were scattered around in Mary's glass eye, though Miller was careful not to share these inappropriate thoughts. In the gift shop, he chose three calico bonnets for Carlene, and as he was paying, he became aware of what he'd been hearing for a few seconds, maybe longer, the sound of sirens, not just one, but several, three, four, coming closer and closer, still faint, but moving toward them. He looked for Carlene, who was safe on the museum side. He scanned the adults, none of whom seemed concerned. He walked back to the gift shop, checking his phone, but there was no connectivity. He stepped outside where there was no doubt now. The cops were coming from every direction, zeroing in on Laura's house. He heard a scream from inside the house, one of the moms, or Judy Julie. Oh, Jesus. The sirens were louder, the cops coming closer, another scream. He ran toward the door, knowing what he should have known all along. One cop car, then another, pulled onto the lawn as Miller moved toward Carlene. After all these months, they were finally here for him. 
Would they shoot him down like they'd shot his brother? More sirens. The door burst open as Miller reached for it. His only chance now was to get her out the back way. Chapter 7, Part 6. But the cops weren't there for him. The door burst open and a line of children erupted out, led by one of the moms, Tammy, several kids trying to check their phones as they ran, but there was no connectivity. Through the open door, Miller could see Judy Julie on the landline at the cashier's counter, pale, blotchy, her eyes bright and dead. We've got to get them to the bus, Janine yelled, pushing kids out the door like a jump master pushing troops from a plane toward a drop zone, shouting, go, go, go. But where was the shooter? Miller saw Carlene at the back of the line and made his way toward her, Joni, the gift shop lady, crying, Eva, the tour guide, stone-faced as they hovered over the children. Miller strained to hear gunfire, but there were only sirens. Two state cops burst through the door, two more from the museum side. Everything stopped as the cops and kids and grown-ups looked at each other, Miller nearly falling down with relief that the cops weren't shooters. Clear, one of them shouted, falling back to the museum. Two others helped herd the children out, the boss cop yelling, Where's the teacher? Miller scrambled toward Carlene. Joni pointed at Judy Julie. How many kids here? The cop called. Judy Julie stared at him. There were more cops outside, moving children toward the bus. Talk to me, the cop said. Carlene was crying as Miller approached her. What's happening, she said. He picked her up into his arms. How many? A cop called from outside. Twenty-six, Miller said to the boss cop, who swung to look at him as he moved Carlene toward the door, plus three adults, teacher and two moms. Carlene was wrapped around him as the last of the children ran out. The sirens went dead. You're a teacher, the boss cop said. A dad. So 31? Miller nodded. The cop called out the number as he helped Judy Julie toward the door. Miller wondered if she'd ever be able to talk again. Outside, the bus was parked in the middle of the road, surrounded by cop cars, with more cars blocking traffic in either direction, though there wasn't any. The kids stood in parallel lines, some crying, some with phones, still trying to use them. Dogs walked the length of the bus, underneath and inside it, followed by their handlers. A cop was at the wheel, the driver outside. Let's take care of these kids now, the cop said to Judy Julie. I'm here with you. She shook her head, nodded. What happened, Miller asked the cop, though he had a pretty good idea. They're all dead, Judy Julie said. What, Miller said. All right, ma'am, the cop said. Every single one of them, she said. Miller, Carlene said, clutching at him. It's okay, Miller said, lowering her and crouching with her there for a second. We're all that's left, Judy Julie said. And the cop said, that's not going to help. You're doing a great job, another cop said as he walked between the lines of children. A car pulled up to the near roadblock, a woman jumping from the driver's side and running toward the children. Several cops moved toward her. Halt, ma'am, one cried. Jenny, the woman called, running. 
A child peeled out of line and ran toward her. Another car pulled behind the first and another. More sirens were approaching. Doors swung open from the parked cars and parents tumbled out, running toward their children. Two cops met them, stopped them, but they called their children's names and the children ran to them. Come on, Miller, Carlene said, pulling at him. We have to go. Every single one of them, Judy Julie said. And Carlene cried, what does that mean? Miller looked at the state cop handling the teacher, who looked like he might start coming apart himself. Miller had never seen that before. The cop looked at him, nodded a little, then looked away. I'm up the hill, Miller said, in that motor home. I want the dogs to check it, the cop said. Come on, ma'am, he said to Judy Julie. Miller didn't want to believe her but he believed the cop, who directed two other cops with a dog to escort Miller and Carlene up the hill, Carlene pulling Miller, wanting to run. It's going to be okay, Miller said, though they both knew it wasn't. Another car pulled to the roadblock, but now the cops were stopping people, the parents still calling their children's names and the kids still peeling away. A dog and a handler were already working the motorhome. The side door's open, Miller called. The handler took the dog inside. Miller and Carlene stood with a cop in front of Laura's house, the sky deep blue and beautiful, a few wispy clouds blowing across it. I have to pee, Carlene said, sort of hyperventilating from crying. Miller hoped she didn't know why she was crying, that she'd never know. I'm a school board member, one of the parents down the hill shouted. Justin! The dog came out of the motorhome leading his cop. You can go in, the cop beside them said. Go ahead, sweetheart. Carlene looked at Miller. I don't want to, she said. I'll bet this police officer would walk in with us, Miller said. Sure I will, the cop said, holding his hand out to Carlene, who took it and allowed herself to be led, Miller following. As she was closing the bathroom door, Miller said, we'll wait right outside. And Carlene said, no. Okay, Miller said, we'll wait inside. He didn't want her out of his sight either, ever again. He checked his phone, still nothing. He whispered to the cop, the teacher said all of them. What does that mean? The cop shook his head. Carlene came out of the bathroom and they walked the cop out. Take care of her now, he said to Miller, who nodded. And you take care of your dad, he said to Carlene. Is it a shooting, she said. The cop looked at Miller, who nodded. Not here, he said, but yes. At school? The cop nodded. Miller put his hand on Carlene's shoulder. Did kids die? It's all very confusing still, the cop said. Yes, Miller said. Kids died. How many? We don't know yet, the cop said. But you're safe here with your dad. What else could anyone say? Down the hill, parents poured onto the lawn, the boss cop losing track of his count. Benny, one woman cried. Benny! But Benny didn't come. Miller couldn't believe it had followed them here to Laura's house, but of course it had. Follow me, the cop called, jogging toward the far roadblock. What are you holding, Carlene asked, and Miller looked at the bag in his hand, Carlene's bonnets, which he handed to her. For you, he said. He opened the door and buckled her in as if she were a baby. I love them, she said, looking at the bonnets. She put one on, tied it. Miller walked around the front of the motorhome to the driver's door, the cop ahead waving him on. There were two cars waiting at the blockade and a few up the road turning around. Cedar Creek would be in the opposite direction from which all the parents were coming. I love them, Carlene said again, a few tears coming, though she seemed to be trying to hold them in. 
One of the cop cars in the blockade pulled out so Miller could get by. He stopped and looked at the cop who had helped them. He looked a little wobbly. Who wouldn't be? The cop said to Carlene, I like your bonnet. And she said, thanks. And Miller pulled away and left what had happened behind them, driving with the windows down. They didn't talk. At some point, the GPS on his phone would tell him how to get back to Springfield, the other direction. At some point, he'd fall into a news hole and find out everything. But not yet. He looked at Carlene, who was staring straight ahead in her blue bonnet, her face puffy and streaked. He reached his hand to her, and she took it. They drove in silence with the warm air blowing over them. Chapter 7, Part 7 It would be hours before he'd learn anything about the massacre, and days before he'd know the whole story, if such a thing were possible, that 18 children who'd been absent that day and 26 children who'd been on a field trip were the only students left at Cedar Creek Elementary School. Every teacher but one, every administrator and staff member murdered, plus 13 cops, one shooter, and 431 children, ages 5 to 11, 498 dead double what Custer had lost at the greasy grass, four times the count of Mountain Meadows, a hundred times the Boston Massacre, more dead children than at any mass murder in American history. But he didn't know that yet, and neither did Carlene. He wanted to keep her from it, which was impossible. The news crews were already checking into the hotel, reporters everywhere, plus state and federal cops pouring into town. Miller only had the room for one more night and couldn't extend beyond that, not that he wanted to. It was just he didn't know where to go, what to do. He scanned the papers while Carlene changed into her swimsuit. He'd known it was a major massacre because of the news vans everywhere, traffic clogging every road, the cops in town and at Laura's earlier. But the numbers were impossible. Hundreds dead? How could that be? He needed to sit tight, make a plan, keep what he could from Carlene until he knew their next move. In the meantime, he would not let her out of the room. People would be crying everywhere, shocked, numb, enraged. There was nowhere the damage wouldn't be palpable, and she'd seen enough already. He told her the pool was closed. But, she said, and he said, no buts. They ordered pizza, watched a movie, played Go Fish. Carlene cried and wanted to know why someone would do such a thing. Miller said he didn't know why, that nobody knew. It was a sickness and a hatred and something else. And we were failing to stop it, he didn't say, another kind of sickness. They were quiet for a while, and then Carlene said, Do you have any jacks? And Miller said, Go fish. Outside, the media and cops and scammers were pouring into town the way deadheads used to arrive before a show, transforming everything for the length of their stay, though massacre sites never returned to normal. But tell me what happened exactly, Carlene said. Miller looked at his phone, pretending to read the news. You know what I know, he said. But how many kids, Carlene said. He didn't want her swimming in it minute to minute, hour to hour. Miss Julie said all of them, she said. I don't know about that, Miller said. 
Ever since they'd left Laura's, he'd kept her as close as he could, trying to determine what she needed and when, as if the right amount of love at the crucial moment might somehow make everything okay. Not the kids at Laura's, though, she said, and Miller said, thank goodness. If Carlene weren't here, he'd have been out meeting survivors, handing out cards, showing different sides of himself. Low-key but visible to those who'd benefit from spiritual profiles in the days ahead, outraged with the outraged, who he'd do his best to avoid later, broken for everyone because there was no way not to be broken, especially at a massacre this size. One dead kid was unbearable, ten unthinkable. He didn't know what hundreds meant or how to handle thousands of melting survivors. No way would he expose Carlene to that, no matter how much obligation and opportunity were here. We're leaving in the morning, he told her. No, she said, looking up from her cards. What about the animals? He told her how the shelter pets could comfort survivors, if only for a little while. We need to go to the Humane Society, she said. Miller's phone buzzed. Your mom, he said, handing it to Carlene. She pulled her bonnet brim over her eyes as she told Lizzie about Laura's house, her bed and bathroom and books, her cookies, her daughter's donkey, the gift shop and museum, providing almost no opportunity for Lizzie to talk until she finally mentioned the shooting, almost as an afterthought, as if she knew to downplay it. No, it wasn't there, she said, at a school somewhere. It would be best for Carlene, for both of them, if Miller had the resources to take care of her in the months and years ahead. But there'd be more shootings down the road if he couldn't find money another way. Or maybe he really would go back to teaching. She wants you, Carlene said, handing him the phone. Hey there, Miller said, trying to sound upbeat. And Lizzie said, did you really take her to a massacre? Miller stood and moved to his own bed. If Carlene hadn't been sitting across from him, he'd have hung up on Lizzie for accusing him like that, as if he'd hurt Carlene when it was Lizzie who'd asked him to take care of her in the first place. And he'd done everything for her, for both of them. I'm not sure what you mean, he said. I mean, she said, why would you take her anywhere near there? I didn't, he said. You did. It came to us, he said. So get her out of there. It's miles from here, he said, two towns over. Carlene sat watching him. Please, Lizzie said. We're safe, Miller said. And Lizzie said, you'd understand if you were a parent, as if he wasn't a parent. Please just do this, she said. He could hear her falling apart through the static. You don't want her anywhere near it either, she said. I know that. Of course he didn't. But it could come anywhere, to anyone, at any time. Lizzie should know that. Everyone should, but no one could, maybe, unless it had already come. We're heading to Jamestown tomorrow, he said. No, Carlene said. Jamestown, Lizzie said. We have to get the animals, Carlene said. Miller shushed her. Far away, he said to Lizzie, though he couldn't imagine getting back on the road now that they'd almost settled down. I can't do this, Lizzie said. I swear to God. Me in here and her in that awful place. I know, Miller said. Would you hold her for me? I will, Miller said. And then she said something swallowed by the roar. Your mom wants me to hug you, he said to Carlene. She stood on her bed and they hugged. Miller understood exactly how Lizzie felt. He wanted to hold Carlene as tight as he could, never let her go. But he didn't want her to see or feel all the fear in him. She started a new doll while he pretended to read. 
He poured whiskey and waited for her to sleep so he could fall into the massacre news, but she stayed awake for hours. They listened to Puff the Magic Dragon over and over, Carlene humming along while Miller drank a second and a third whiskey in the dark. Chapter 7, Part 8 Miller mined the news for details. One shooter, hundreds of victims, a truck bomb at the back of the building, grenades, IEDs, kerosene, thousands of rounds of ammunition. In the days ahead, the details would accumulate, updates and quotes, struggles to understand a killer who seemed like such a good guy, so clearly mentally ill, a stamp collector who hated his mother, his father, but loved guns and video games, everyone who knew him knowing something like this would happen, though no one could have guessed what or when. Victim bios would run for weeks, but the stories would finally fade, followed by bumps of interest in smaller, almost meaningless massacres. Then a killer would rack up a thousand bodies, then five thousand. There had to be a limit for a single shooter massacre. We just hadn't reached it yet. Miller thought of his brother on the floor at Sunny Day, wrapped around his son who'd killed seven kids. Charles trying to stop him, to save him, the cops killing them both. What else were they supposed to do? All Miller could do was protect Carlene, which might be impossible, but he'd try. It seemed like days and months had passed since he'd sat in the coffee shop planning his next hero villain. He poured more whiskey and propped himself on his bed to write. Hero Villain 7, Laura Ingalls Wilder and Crazy Horse. They fell in love and got machine guns, taking everything they could get their hands on, whatever was left, robbing and killing and screwing everyone. They rode through the country on horseback and motorcycles, in fast cars and passenger trains, taking what they wanted and what they didn't want, taking everything, money and booze and people's lives if they got in the way, becoming heroes to the folks of Arkansas and Oklahoma and South Dakota and everywhere else. God, they were beautiful. They could never get enough of each other or anything else. But all around them, the rich got richer, taking more and more, while the rest of us fell into booze and heroin and impotent rage. It wasn't just that so few had everything, the money and judges and private islands. It was how they wouldn't stop crapping out literacy programs, hospital wings, shacks for the homeless, single-parent college funds, as if they expected to be thanked for their largesse, until Laura finally said, We don't want your damn charity holding a gator knife to a billionaire's throat. What we want is what you have, all of it. And they took it, Laura and Crazy Horse, spreading it to the rest of us in the form of turkeys and guns and mortgage payments, but keeping most for themselves or burning it. They tracked down one philanthropist after another, cut his throat, took what he had, everything he'd claimed to work so hard for, then moved to the next one. Laura's family had never had anything except promises of a better future, and Crazy Horse had never had anything that wasn't taken away. 
Their solution was guns, more and bigger. And though massacres had never worked in the past, Laura and Crazy Horse used them to enforce an equitable distribution of wealth, a chicken in every pot, clean energy subsidies, eliminating the need for fossil fuels, the earth healing itself, disease eradicated, all based on a conjoining of Indian and pioneer superpowers. Finally, we could live up to the promise of our ideals. Everyone free and equal and happy and immortal. Laura and Crazy Horse spreading the goodness until everyone had everything. No one greedy or mean or hungry. At which point they beat their guns into plowshares and the era of massacres was over. Or this. Laura was a tiny woman married to a failed farmer, Almanzo, a.k.a. Farmer Boy. She called him Manly, and he called her Bessie, and their daughter Rose had a donkey they all called Spookendike, which had nothing to do with Rose being a lesbian, if she even was one. There are times when all we can think about is who's a lesbian and who isn't, wondering why we all aren't. But this isn't one of those times. What matters here is Rose and Laura's complicated mother-daughter relationship, especially as Rose got older and became a successful writer and encouraged her mother to write, never once dreaming that Laura's success would overshadow her own, which it did, which wasn't fair because they wrote those damn books together, Rose reworking her mother's plots and prose, a secret that aided her until she became an acolyte of Anne Rand, putting her own name only on books of unreadable propaganda, reserving her real revenge for her will, in which she left the copyrights of her mother's books to Roger McBride, an anti-government zealot and 1976 libertarian presidential nominee, Laura's lucrative mythology feeding his and the Koch brothers' causes for eternity. If only Crazy Horse had been around to cut somebody's throat. But Crazy Horse had died on an office floor at Fort Robinson two years before Laura's family moved to the shores of Silver Lake. Everyone wanted him dead. He'd become a symbol of resistance, of the old ways, and as a symbol, he was already dead but for the killing, as finally administered by William Gentles with a bayonet. It took hours for Crazy Horse to die on the floor of the adjutant's office where he refused a bed. Private Gentles, an Irishman, died a few months later of asthma. But that's not all. There's good here, too, mixed with bad, because Crazy Horse had a big bad love when he was young with Black Buffalo Woman, who ran away with him, though she was married to No Water, who tracked them down and shot Crazy Horse in the face, which didn't kill him, but drove Black Buffalo Woman away. In a movie, this would explain everything. In real life, Laura and Manly were cursed or blessed with a tepid love. It was a miracle that she got pregnant at all. They moved from South Dakota to Missouri, Laura reflecting on the land in a diary, how she wished for an artist's hand or a poet's brain or even to be able to tell in good, plain prose how beautiful it was. If I had been the Indians, she wrote, I would have scalped more white folks before I ever would have left it. Later, Laura would scalp whoever she wanted, billionaires mostly, until Crazy Horse said, first of all, you were not the Indians. Second of all, we did not leave. We were forced off that land. No amount of scalping could have changed anything. To which Laura replied, 
I would have kept scalping anyway, implying that she loved the land more than Crazy Horse did, which infuriated him, his rage infuriating her, draining their love and any hope of killing the rest of the billionaires and saving the world because all they wanted now was to kill each other. But you know what, George? Even if they couldn't save the world, even if we're all just killing ourselves and each other as the empire collapses, I still believe in this project and everything we can become. Now doesn't have to be our end, George. Consider the dawn of the Civil War when we've been coming undone for decades and finally began ripping each other to pieces. Consider the Great Depression and all the unnamed depressions when all we had to eat was our babies. Consider slavery and emancipation and Reconstruction because there was Reconstruction, George, even in the wake of the Klan's murderous tide. Consider Jim Crow, then the Civil Rights Act, triumphant and transformative, even as it fell apart, piece by piece, but not all of it. Consider the long view, George, how things have gotten incrementally better. Hamilton and Burr shooting each other, yes, but everything swelling and resolving, becoming good, then horrible, then a little bit better. America the beautiful, the massacre, immaculate. But not merely immaculate or a massacre, George, because I'm trying to show you the whole picture here, not just dirt and shine. There's love in that, George, in struggling to see ourselves, to know ourselves, even knowing that parts of us are awful. I don't think you see it that way, though, and you should. I'm not sure you see anything the way you should, George, certainly not me. Still, I am loath to close. We're not enemies, George, but friends. Though passion may have strained, it must not break our bonds of affection. The mystic cords of memory stretching from every battlefield and patriot grave to every living heart and hearthstone all over this land will yet swell the chorus of the Union when again touched by the better angels of our nature. And if I've succumbed to the worse angels of my nature, George, I'm a little drunk here, so I hope you'll forgive me. What I mostly want is to give us another chance, George, forgiveness for everyone. Maybe not everyone. Maybe not Charles Manson or Jim Jones or John Wayne Gacy or Bloody Bill Anderson or Lizzie Borden or Huck Finn's father. But forgiveness for most of us, George, certainly for you and me, touched as will be by angels. You've been listening to Miller Kane, a true and exact history, a novel by Samuel Ligon, published in weekly installments by The Inlander, with archived audio at spokanepublicradio.org slash Miller Kane. Our theme music is by Indian Goat. I'm your producer, Chris Massini. Join us next week for the latest episode of Miller Kane.